everybody, and welcome to the Going Upcast, your weekly feel-good podcast for this week. We talk about a brand new streaming service and all of the fun things I witnessed on there. We read a couple more chapters of the book about water-based adventures, and I talk about quite a day I had. That's right, this week we are going to get ankle deep into HBO Max, which I got a free trial of, and a couple of things that I saw on there, some classics. Some newer TV shows. It's a it's a fucking medley of stuff that we we watched on HBO Max. I also went on a uh, a birthday adventure, and we did a couple of really fun things there, including axe throwing in an escape room. That I'll get into more details later on. Then we got more chapters of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea this week. This is episode one fucking hundred of the Going Up cast. So it's a longer one. I really tried to pull out all the stops. This week to make it the best episode that we could possibly have. Uh, before we get into it, just a couple of quick notes right at the top. Number one, if you like the Going Up Cast and wish to support the Going Up Cast, there's one really good way you can do that. You go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast, or you can become a $5 patron and get access to the monthly live streams and the Pokemon Nuzlocke run that I'm currently going through, uh, the newest episode of which went up yesterday. It was supposed to go up last week, but I forgot. So it's, it's going up yesterday. It's a really good one. Uh, we are, we're about to get off that, that first god dang island, um, and I'm very excited about it. I also wanted to make a quick note. Um, I know I mentioned that when Brissinger was supposed to start landing, it was going to be two chapters a day. Uh, because of the move, it is not feasible uh, for, for me to do two chapters a day at this moment in time. Uh, perhaps we can ramp up to it later on. But right now, it, it is the standard one chapter a day. And I think that's probably for the best because I know I'm looking at the next chapter um, on like this daunting to-do list. And I know in my heart that chapter is going to take like 50 minutes. Um, and that's that's the thing is that these the Brisinger chapters on average are much longer than the chapters were in Eldest. And that's why the two chapters a day thing is just not feasible. It's, it's fucking daunting when I crack open that book and it's like, oh, hey, you want to... You want this chapter to be 45 pages long? Cool, let's go! Um, and in case you were wondering, in case anybody was ever wondering, the the average rate it takes for me to audibly read a page is about a minute, 20 seconds. Um, so, or 1.3, if you were to math it out. So if I were to take, this is really exciting, we're gonna do live math. We're gonna, we're gonna do it. If it was a 45 page chapter, and when we multiply that, it would take about 58 and a half minutes to read that. Um, and that's how I can accurately determine how long things are going to take me. For example, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a lot longer than I thought. It's about 320 pages, uh, which is going to take 416 minutes. We divide that by 60. That's about seven hours of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Doesn't sound bad when you break it down like that. You're like, oh, well, that's if you read the whole thing in a day, you'd be fine. Um, but I can tell you from experience that speaking for seven hours straight is uh, it's a hard. <laughs> it, would take, it would take a lot out of me. Uh, that's enough of me dawdling. We've got a really great episode for you guys this week, and I really want to get into it. So let us listen to the next thing in the podcast. So in this wide, wide world of streaming sites, it's not uncommon for a new one to pop up every other day. And I decided to take another look at, uh, well, not another look, but I decided to take a look at another one. I just flipped the phrasing there for a second. Anyway, um, with my recent purchase of my television, I got a free 30-day trial for HBO Max. So I thought, what the hell? 
I'd give that a shot. I strategized with my approach to HBO Max. I went through everything they had, and I created a list of shit that I wanted to watch. Um, it's actually not that, that long, and I shouldn't have a problem finishing it. But I wanted to talk a little bit about my experience with the app itself. Number one, sound quality is a little hit and miss. Um, if it's a recent production, like I watched um, Infinity Train, which I will talk about in more detail here in a little bit. Um, but the sound quality into that was totally fine. Uh, but then I also watched Alien, like the first Alien movie. And honest to God, I had to turn my sound up quite a bit in order to hear what the hell they were saying. And even then, it was still like, I don't know if it was the movie or the, the service, but sound quality was pretty not super good. Um, and I know Alien was supposedly like this perfect movie. So, you know. I'm inclined to think that it's HBO Max's fault, not Alien's fault, but that's fine. As a, a fairly wide pool of content, uh, a somewhat decent amount of original stuff, not too much, but that makes sense because it is brand new. Um, it had like 20 original programs, of which maybe one was mildly intriguing. I haven't watched any of their original programming yet, but eh, it's, it's HBO. I mean... They've made some pretty decent stuff, um, like the first six seasons of Game of Thrones. Pretty good. Pretty solid. Um, overall. And then, uh, you know, Westworld is on there. That's on my list. I need to watch that. Uh, His Dark Materials, the Golden Compass show uh, that they did with BBC. I definitely need to watch that. that those sorts of things are on there. Uh, a lot of old school movies. Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Singing in the Rain are all on there. Charlie Chaplin stuff is on there. All the Studio Ghibli movies are on there. Um, and if I didn't already own all of them on DVD, that'd be really intriguing to me and a really strong selling point. Um, that's one of the things. I feel like anybody who's like a really good Studio Ghibli fan and has been for a number of years probably owns those movies on DVD. Um, so the fact that you can stream them now is not as big of a draw as I think they may have thought it was. But, you know, there's obviously lots of people out there who don't have the DVDs and would love to watch on an HBO Max. HBO Max is $15 a month which is steep um, in this in this day and age. It's more expensive than Netflix, it's more expensive than Hulu, and it's more expensive than Disney+. Plus. Um, it also does not, in my opinion, bring enough unique content to the table to justify that. It has a lot of movies that a lot of other places don't, um, that's for sure, but everything kind of rotates, you know? It'll spend some time on that streaming service, and then it'll move over to the next streaming service, and so on and so forth, so... Uh, if there's something on there that you really, really want to see, you probably just free trial it um, or spend the $15 a month. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm just saying that it's a decent streaming service with some intermittent sound quality issues um, that I'm happy I got 30 days of for free, but I probably would not have spent real money to get this service. Um, it's kind of the, the, the run of it. Uh, but that's enough about HBO Max. Let's now talk about something else. something really cathartic after a long week of work so to come on home brew up a pot of tea make the messiest quesadilla in the world and then go right now i've got to read some chapters it's pretty nice what the fuck chapter were we on that's a good question me why well, don't i know the answer to that i think it was I think we did the Nautilus last time. Yeah, uh, so we're on everything through electricity. 
which is way down here. Actually, I should be able to navigate by chapter, right? Yeah, there we go. Everything through electricity. There we go. What number chapter is it? That is a good question, me. Why, thank you. God, I always ask the best questions. It's chapter 12. Everything through electricity. In case you were wondering, which you probably weren't because you saw it when you clicked on the thing. Anyway. Um, oh, fuck. What did Captain Nemo say, uh, sound like? It was the French. Sir, Captain Nemo said, showing me the instruments hanging on the walls of his stateroom. These are the devices needed to navigate the Nautilus. Here, as in the lounge, I always have them before me eyes, and they indicate my position, an exact heading in the midst of the ocean. You're familiar with some of them, such as this thermometer, ooh, which gives the temperature inside the Nautilus, the barometer, which measures the heaviness of the outside air and forecasts changes in the weather. The humidistat, all right, which indicates the degree of dryness in the atmosphere. The storm glass, whose mixture decomposes to foretell the arrival of tempests. The compass, which steers my course. The sextant, which takes the sun's altitude and tells me my latitude. Chronometers, which allow me to calculate my longitude. And finally, spyglasses, for both day and night enabling me to scrutinize every point of the horizon once the Nautilus has risen to the surface of the waves. But these are normal navigational instruments, I replied, and I'm familiar with their use. But no doubt these other, um, these other answer pressing needs unique to the Nautilus. Yes, that dial I see there with the needle moving across it. Isn't that a pressure gauge? It is indeed a pressure gauge. It's placed in contact with the water. And it indicates the outside pressure on our hull, which in turn gives me the depth at which my submersible is sitting. And these are some new breed of sounding line. They are thermo thermometric sounding lines that report water temperatures in different strata. These other instruments whose functions I can't even guess. Here, Professor, I need to give you some background information, Captain Nemo said. So kindly hear me out. I don't know what accent this is, but I'm loving it. He fell silent for some moments, then said, There is a powerful, obedient, swift, and effortless force that can be bent to any use which reigns supreme aboard my vessel. It does everything. It lights me. It warms me. It's the soul of my mechanical equipment. This force is electricity. Electricity! I exclaimed with some surprise. Yes, sir. But, Captain, you have a tremendous speed of movement that doesn't square with the strength of electricity. Until now, its dynamic potential has remained quite limited, capable of producing only small amounts of power. Professor, Captain Nemo replied, my electricity isn't the run-of-the-mill variety. And with your permission, I'll leave it at that. Sure, why don't you just say it's magic and call it quits? Don't explain to me why your ship has more powerful electricity than was available at the time. Why would I want to know in this book that has mostly, mostly been, you know, fairly intense with factual details? Like with animals and names and things. Not so much in the super-powered submarine, but, you know, in other things. And things. When was the last time the submarine got updated? I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with underwater craft to know one way or the other. I won't insist, sir, and I'll rest content with simply being flabbergasted at your results. I would ask one question, however, which you need an answer if it is indiscreet. The electric cells you use to generate this marvelous force must be depleted very quickly. They're a zinc component, for example. How do you replace it since you no longer stay in contact with the shore? That question deserves an answer. 
Captain Nemo replied. First off, I mentioned that at the bottom of the sea there exists veins of zinc, iron, silver, and gold, whose mining would be certainly uh, would quite certainly be feasible. But I've tapped none of these land-based metals, and I want to make demands only on the sea itself for the sources of my electricity. The sea itself? Yes, Professor. And there is no shortage of these sources. In fact, by establishing a circuit between two wires immersed to different depths, I'd be able to obtain electricity through the diverging temperatures they experience. But I prefer to use a more practical procedure. And that is? You're familiar with the composition of salt water. In a thousand grams, one finds 96.5% water and about 2.66% sodium chloride. Then small quantities of magnesium chloride, potassium chloride, magnesium bromide, sulfate of mag uh, mag magnesia, sure, magnesia, calcium sulfate, and calcium carbonate. Hence, you observe that sodium chloride is encountered there in significant proportions. Now then, it is this sodium that I extract from salt water in which I compose my electric cells. Sodium? Yes, sir. Mixed with mercury, it forms an amalgam that takes the place of zinc in Bunsen cells. The mercury is never depleted. Only the sodium is consumed, and the sea itself gives me that. Beyond this, I'll mention that sodium batteries have found to generate greater energy. Their electromotor strength is twice that of zinc batteries. Of course, now we're on lithium, right? Sodium batteries. Yes. Sodium ion battery. Um, sodium ion battery is a type of rechargeable battery analogous to lithium ion batteries, but using sodium ions to charge the carriers. What is that fun and exciting? Well, who gives a crap, really? It's a type of battery. Anyway. Um, also, in case you're wondering, calcium carbonate is the... Oh, my God. Computer, shush, please. Please. I'm in the middle of doing my work. Anyway. Calcium carbonate is the chemical that is uh, the basis for not only seashells, but eggshells as well. In fact, you can dissolve calcium carbonate with a mild acid. In other words, if you want to clean your seashells from like some grime and stuff, you can hit them with a little vinegar, and that'll just kind of rub away that top layer. Or, if you put an egg in a cup of vinegar, and let that shit sit for like a day, what's gonna happen is it will dissolve the eggshell, and the vinegar will actually enter the membrane of the egg, creating what is quite possibly the world's worst water balloon ever. Please don't use that to do any harm and stuff. Because, oh my god, getting hit with a raw vinegar egg would be the fucking worst. My balance is a little off. Hold on a second. I need to just real quick... Uh, change that. Hold on. Here we go. Any second now. Be brave. Is it working? Which one's this one? Hold on. This is. Uh, it should be working. Hold on a second. Is it this one? Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay, so this needs to actually go up a bit more. There we go. That should do it. Hello. Perfect. Sorry about that. My my levels were slightly off, um, but it looks looks pretty good right now. Anyway, the fuck was I? Um, Captain, I fully understand that excellency or the excellence of sodium under the conditions in which you've placed the sea contains it. Fine, but it still has to be produced and short extracted. And how do you accomplish this? 
I'm not sure batteries could do the extracting, but if I'm not mistaken, the consumption of sodium needed by your electrical equipment would be greater than the quantity you'd extract. It would come about then, and that process of producing sodium, you'd use up more than you'd make. Accordingly, Professor, I don't extract it with batteries. Quite simply, I use the heat of the coal from the earth. From the earth? I said, my voice going up on the word. Oh, I guess who that means, like, from the earth? Like that. We'll say coal from the sea floor, if you prefer, Captain Nemo replied. And you can bind these veins of underwater coal? You'll watch me, uh, you'll watch me work them, Professor Arnox. I ask only a little patience of you, since you'll have ample time to be patient. Just remember one thing, I owe everything to the ocean. It generates electricity, and electricity gives the no less heat like motion in the word life itself. But not the air you breathe. Oh, I could produce the air needed on board, but it would be pointless, since I can rise to the surface of the sea whenever I like. However, even though electricity does not supply me with breathable air, in at least operates the powerful pumps that store it under, under pressure special tanks, which, if need be, allow me to extend my stay in the lower strata for as long as I want. Captain, I replied, I'll rest content with marveling. You're obviously... You've obviously found what all mankind will surely find one day, the true dynamic power of electricity. I'm not so certain they'll find it, Captain Nemo replied icily. But be that as it may, you're already familiar with the first use I've found for this valuable force. It lights us. And with a uniformity and continuity that aren't even possessed by sunlight. Now, look at that clock. It's electric. It runs with an accuracy rivaling the finest chronometers. I've had it divided into 24 hours like Italian clocks, since neither day nor night, sun nor moon exists for me. But only this artificial light that I import to the depths of the sea. See, right now it is 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, but what fucking time zone? I guess it doesn't matter since you're your own, your own jam. You don't have to relate to other parts of the world, so fuck it, right? That's perfect. Another use for electricity. That dial hanging before our eyes indicates how fast the Nautilus is going. An electric wire puts in contact with the patent lock. This needle shows me the actual speed of my submersible. And hold on. Just now we're proceeding at a moderate pace. A 15 miles per hour. It's marvelous, I replied. I truly see, Captain, how right you are to use this force. It's sure to take place of wind, water, and steam. But that's not all, Professor Arnox, said Captain Nemo, standing up. And if you'd care to follow me, we'll inspect the Nautilus's stern. Check out the ass of me boat. In essence, I was already familiar with the whole forward part of the underwater boat, and here are its exact subdivisions from going amidship to its spur. The dining room, five meters long and separated from the library by a watertight bulkhead. In other words, it could not be penetrated by the sea. The library, five meters long. The main lounge, 15, or ten meters long, separated by the captain's stateroom by a second watertight bulkhead. The aforesaid stateroom, five meters long. Mine... Uh, 2.5 meters long. And finally, air tank 7.5 meters long, extending to the stem post. Total length of 35 meters. Doors were cut into the watertight bulkheads, which were set hermetically by means of an India rubber seal, which ensured complete safety aboard the Nautilus in the event of a leak in any one section. I followed Captain Nemo down gangways located for easy transit. I arrived amidship. There I found a short of shaft heading upward uh, between two watertight bulkheads. An iron ladder clamped to the wall led to the shaft's upper end. I asked the captain what this ladder was for. It goes to the skiff, he replied. What? You have a skiff? I replied in some astonishment. Surely, an excellent long boat, light and unsinkable, which is used for excursions and fishing trips and Sunday afternoons on the water. 
But do you want to set out today you have to return to the surface of the sea? By no means! The skiff is attachable to the top side of the Nautilus's hull, and it is set in a cavity express designed to re expressly designed to receive it. It's completely decked over, absolutely watertight, and held solidly in place by bolts. This ladder leads to a manhole cut into the Nautilus's hull, and corresponding to a comparable hole cut into the side of the skiff. I insert myself through this double opening into the long boat. My... <laughs> oh my god. I just realized where this voice is coming from. It's fucking... It's a really, really bad impression of Tia Dalma from Pirates of the Caribbean. Captain Jack Sparrow. No, like, I just... It's bad. It's bad. It's really bad. It's fine. But it's bad. Anyway. Um, my crew closes up the hole belonging to the Nautilus. I close up one belonging to the skiff simply by screwing it into place. I undo the bolts holding the skiff into the submersible, and the longboat rises with prodigious speed to the surface of the sea. I then open the deck paneling, carefully closed until the point. Until that point, I up the mast and hoist sail, or I take out my oars, and I go for a spin. How do you return to the ship? I don't, Professor Arnox. The Nautilus returns to me. At your command, at my command, an electric wire connects me to the ship. I fire off a telegram, and that's that. Right, I said, tipsy from all these wonders. Nothing to it. After passing the well of the companionway that led to the platform, I saw a cabin two meters long, in which Council and Nedland, enraptured with their meal, were busy devouring it to the last crumb. Ugh, tea. Delicious. Then a door opened in the galley, three meters long, located between the vessel's huge storage lockers. There, even more powerful and obedient than gas, electricity did most of the cooking. Arriving under stoves, wires transmitted to platinum griddles, a heat that was distributed and sustained with perfect consistency. It also heated a distilling mechanism that, via evaporation, supplied excellent drinking water. Can you drink distilled water? I thought it wasn't supposed to be good for you because it's like missing essential vitamins and stitch. I don't know. Next, to this galley was a bathroom conveniently laid out with faucets supplying hot or cold water at will. After the galley came the crew of the quarters, five meters long, but the door was closed and I couldn't see its accommodations, which might have told me the number of men it took to operate the Nautilus. At the far end stood a fourth watertight bulkhead separating the crew's quarters from the engine room. A door opened, uh, door opened, and I stood in a compartment where Captain Nemo, indisputably a world-class engineer, had set up his locomotive equipment. Bradley let the engine room measured at least 20 meters in length. It was divided by function in two parts. The first contained the cells for generating electricity, the second a mechanism that transmitted movement to the propeller. Right off, I detected an odor permeating the compartment that was, uh, sui generis. Okay. Uh, it's got an asterisk on it, so we'll find out what that means later. Captain Nemo noticed the negative impression it made upon me. That, he said, is the gaseous discharge caused by our use of sodium. But it's only a mild inconvenience. In any event, every morning we sanitize the ship by ventilating it into the open air. Meanwhile... I examined the Nautilus's engine with a fascination easy to imagine. You observe, Captain Nemo told me, that I use Bunsen cells, not Rumikoff cells. Rumikoff. Rumikoff. The latter would be ineffectual. One uses fewer Bunsen cells, but they're big and strong. And experience has proven their superiority. The ex electricity generated here makes its way to the stern, where electromagnets of huge size activate a specialist system of levers and gears that transmit movement from the propeller shaft. The latter has a di diameter of 6 meters and a pitch of 7.5 meters and can do up to 120 revolutions per minute. And that gives you a speed of 50 miles per hour. Five, zero.
Anyway. There lay a mystery, but I didn't insist on exploring. How could electricity work with such power? Where did this nearly unlimited energy originate? What, uh, was it in the extraordinary voltage obtained from some new kind of induction coil? Could its transmission have been immeasurably increased by some unknown system of levers? This was the point I could not grasp. Captain Nemo, I said, I'll vouch for the results and try not to explain them. I've seen the Nautilus work out in front of the Abraham Lincoln, and I know where I stand on its speed. But it isn't enough just to move. We have to see where we're going. We must be able to steer left, right, up or down. How do you find the? How do you reach the lower depths where you meet an increasing resistance that's assessed a hundreds of atmospheres? How do you rise back to the surface of the ocean? Finally, how do you keep your ship at whatever level suits you? Am I indiscreet in asking you all these things? Not at all, Professor. Captain answered me after a slight hesitation. Since you'll never leave this underwater boat, come into my lounge. It's actually our workroom. And there you'll learn the full story of the Nautilus. Also, apparently, uh, what was it? Su generis is Latin for in a class of itself. And then, uh, with the new system of levers, there was an author's note that read, And sure enough, there's now talk of such a discovery in which a new set of levers generate considerable power. Did its inventor meet up with Captain Nemo? I guess at the time of writing this. Mmm, Jules Verne, it's a mystery is what it is. As I mentioned earlier, I watched Infinity Train, which was debuted on Cartoon Network as a pilot in 2016, and then was turned into a fee, not feature film, a full-length season, first season, uh, a couple of years after the debut of the pilot. And it has since gotten a second season, and is getting a third season, which unfortunately will be exclusive to HBO Max. Season one of Infinity Train is pretty goddamn good. Um, I don't think it's, well, actually, I was about to be like, it's damn near perfect. Um, and I think it might just be damn near perfect. Mild nitpicky stuff would separate it from a true 100% score. But by and large, it was an excellent story. It did what it wanted to do, and then it got out. And the beauty of the in, um, Infinity Train is the potential for the anthology-based structure that they're going for. The main character of season one is not the main character of season two. Um, they're related in in a way that I'm not gonna spoil, but it is not the same character. So you, you get each character's story told very succinctly, and then it moves on to somebody else's story. And I'm halfway through season two right now. Let me just really briefly give you what's up. So first season, you have a character named Tulip, who's voiced by Ashley Johnson from Critical Role, which is fantastic. Um, and Tulip wants to go to uh, a programming camp and she uh, runs away from home because her parents can't drive her because they just went through a divorce and scheduling conflict. And she boards the train. And essentially the way the train works is you travel from car to car helping the people on those cars with whatever their problem is. And in doing so, your glowing number on your hand clicks down and once that number hits zero, you gotta go home. And you would have learned a lesson. It's almost Saw-esque, you know? You go through some shit to become a better person. And the theme of season one is adapting to change and being okay with change. And just like going through the struggles of, 
you know, like your parents being divorced and not really knowing who you are as a person and how it's okay to rely on other people and how you can self-sacrifice in order to help people you care about, stuff like that. Um, and it's told really well, but much like uh, the best animated shows aimed at children, there are moments of the show that are incredibly dark and very thematically heavy. Um, I'd lump this in the same group as Gravity Falls. I think there are moments in Infinity Train that are darker than Gravity Falls. In fact, I would take it a step further and I would compare it to things like Over the Garden Wall, um, those styles of short one season shows that have a much more mature theming to it that um, as a child you may not want to witness. That being said, there's still a lot of very lighthearted, funny moments in Infinity Train that are well like done. It's incredibly well balanced. You'll have a moment of levity that's beautiful and then it'll hit you in the gut with a moment of, oh my God, what the fuck did they just do? And it does that really well. It's a very well told story. The characters are phenomenal. Uh, the voice acting is really solid. The animation's super cool. It's creative as hell. And season two is, uh, it does the it does the, the struggle thing that I think all second seasons do when the first one is so good. Um, it, it slows down a bit in the beginning to try to get its characters off the ground, but it does it pretty quickly, which it should because we're talking about 10 minute episodes in like 10 episodes a season. Like it does not have a lot of time to tell its story. It's basically a really long movie, uh, but it does its job really, really well. And it's one of the better animated shows I've seen in some times. Um, if I were to compare it to shows I've seen recently, I enjoyed season one in Infinity Train more than Gravity Falls. Season one, for sure. Season two of Gravity Falls was excellent. Um, that was, you know, kind of goes without question. Um, I think it's better than Star vs. the Forces of Evil, but I still think Star vs. the Forces of Evil is very good. And I would say it's better than, uh, what's it called? She-Ra, even though She-Ra is still also very good. I think where Infinity Train excels is that it was able to tell just as a compelling a story, um, if not more compelling a story than all of those shows I just mentioned in a condensed amount of time. And that is a that is a feat, you know? It, it's a tough challenge to do that, but they did it really, really well. And if you ever get the opportunity to see season one, it would take you like an hour and a half, honestly. It's like not even all that long. Um, I don't think you're gonna regret it. I think you're gonna really enjoy the ride that it takes you on. Um, and you might learn a little something about yourself along the way. So Infinity Train, God, it's it's excellent. I mean, I'd give it like an eight or a nine out of 10 if I gave it a number score, which I don't really do, but it's very good. I would highly recommend you check it out. Let's move on to the next thing of the podcast. Get distracted by things in the internet trying to trying to take me away from my my gerb. I just fucking recorded the last chapter so you'd think I'd remember which chapter this one's chapter 13 some figures you gotta figure out some stuff a moment later we were seated on a couch in the lounge cigars betwixt our lips the captain placed before my eyes a working drawing that gave the ground plan cross section and side views of the Nautilus then he began his description as follows. Oh boy, here we go. Here, Professor Arnox, on the different dimensions of this port now transporting you, it is a very long cylinder with conical ends. It noticeably takes the shape of a cigar, 
a shape already adopted in London for several projects of the same kind. The length of the cylinder from end to end is exactly 70 meters, and its maximum breadth of beam is 8 meters. So it isn't quite built on the 10 to 1 ratio of your high speed steam airs, but its lines are sufficiently long and they're tapering gradually enough so that the displaced water easily slips past and poses no obstacle to their ship's movement. These two dimensions allow you to obtain, via a simple calculation, the surface area and volume of the Nautilus. Its surface area totals 1,011.45 square meters, and its volume is 1,507.2 cubic meters, which is tantamount to saying that when it's completely submerged, it displaces 1,500 cubic meters of water, or weighs 1,500 metric tons. In drawing up plans for a shipment to navigate on the water, I wanted it, when floating on the waves, to lie nine-tenths below the surface, and to emerge only one-tenth. Consequently, under these conditions, it needed to displace only nine-tenths of its volume, hence 1,356.48 cubic meters. In other words, it was to weigh only that same number of metric tons. So I was obliged not to exceed this weight while building it to the aforesaid dimensions. The Nautilus is made up of two holes, one inside the other out between them. One inside the other. Between them, joining them together are iron T-bars. They give the ship its utmost rigidity. In fact, thanks to the cellular arrangement, it has the resistance of a stone block. As if it were completely solid, its plating cannot give way, it's self-adhering, and not dependent on the tightness of the rivets. And due to the perfect union of its materials, the solidarity of its construction allows it to defy the most violent seas. The two walls are manufactured from boilerplate steel, whose relative density is 7.8 times that of water. The first hole had a thickness of no less than 5 centimeters, and weighs 394.96 metric tons. My second hole, the outer cover, includes a keel 50 centimeters high by 25 feet wide which itself weighs 62 metric tons. This hole, the engines, the ballast, and various accessories and accommodations, plus the bulkheads and interior places have a combined weight of 961.52 metric tons, which when added to 394.96 metric tons, gives us the desired goal of 1356.48 metric tons. Clear? Clear, I replied. So, Captain Warner, when the Nautilus lies on the waves under these conditions, one-tenth of it does emerge above the water. Now then, if I provide some ballast tanks equal to the capacity to that of one-tenth, hence able to hold 150.72 metric tons, and if I fill them with water, the boat displaces 1507.2 metric tons, or it weighs that much, and it would be completely submerged. That's what comes about, Professor. These ballast tanks exist within easy access to the lower reaches of the Nautilus, I opened some stopcocks, the tanks filled, the port sinks, and it's exactly flush with the surface of the water. Fine, Captain, but now we've come to a genuine difficulty. You're able to lie flush with the surface of the ocean, that I understand. But lower down, while diving beneath the surface, isn't your submersible going to encounter pressure? And consequently, undergo an upward thrust that must be assessed at one atmosphere per every 30 feet of water, hence about one kilogram per square seat for each square centimeter? Precisely, sir. Then unless you fill up the whole Nautilus, I don't see how you can force it down to the heart of these liquid masses. Professor, Captain Nemo replied. 
Static objects mustn't be confused with dynamic ones. We'll be open to serious error. Comparatively little effort is spent in reaching the lotion's lower regions, because all objects have a tendency to become sink errors. Follow my logic here. I'm only yes, Captain. When I wanted to determine what increase in weight the Nautilus needed to be given in order to submerge, I had only to take note of the proportionate reduction in volume that the saltwater experiences in deeper and deeper strata. That's obvious, I replied. Now then, if the water isn't absolutely incompressible, at least it compresses very little. And in fact, according to the most recent calculations, this reduction is only 0.000436 per atmosphere, per every 30 feet of depth. For instance, to go a thousand meters down, I must take into account that a reduction in volume that occurs under pressure equivalent to that from a thousand meter column of water. In other words, under a pressure of a hundred atmospheres. In this instant, the reduction would be 0 0.00436. Consequently, I'd have increased my weight from 1507.2 metric tons to 1513.77. So the added weight would only be 6.57 metric tons. That's all? That's all, Professor Alnox, and the calculation is easy to check. Now then, I have a supplementary ballast tank capable of shipping 100 metric tons of water, so I can descend to a considerable depth. When I want to rise again and lie flush with the surface, all I have to do is expel that water. And if I desire that the Nautilus emerge above the waves to one-tenth of its total capacity, I empty all the ballast tanks completely. This logic, backed up by figures, left me without a single objection. I don't know enough about math or science or really anything to be able to determine if these are accurate, but I'm going to trust Jules Verne is correct. If you're a math magician, feel free to let me know. Go on gmail.com. Anyway, I accept your calculations, Captain, I replied, and I'll be ill-mannered to dispute them since your daily experience bears them out. But at this juncture, I have a hunch that we're still left with one real difficulty. What's that, sir? When we're at a depth of a thousand meters, the Nautilus plating bears a pressure of a hundred atmospheres. If at this point you want to empty the supplementary ballast tanks in order to lighten your boat and rise to the surface, your pump must overcome the pressure of a hundred atmospheres, which is a hundred kilograms per each square centimeter. This demands a strength that electricity alone can give me. Captain Nemo said swiftly, Sir, I repeat, the dynamic power of my engines is near infinite. The Nautilus's pumps have prodigious strength, as you must have noticed when their water spouts swept like a torrent over the Abraham Lincoln. Besides, I use my supplementary ballast tanks only to reach an average depth of 1,500 to 12,000 meters, and that with a view of con to conserving my machinery. Accordingly, when I have a mind to visit the ocean's depths two or three vertical leagues beneath the surface, I use maneuvers that is, are more time-consuming but no less infallible. What are they, Captain? I asked. Here, I'm naturally tell led into telling you how the Nautilus is maneuvered. I can't wait to find out. This voice is almost as grating on my uh, pipes as Dumbledore's was. In order to steer this boat to port or starboard and short to make turns on the horizontal plane, I use an ordinary wide blade rudder that is fastened to the of stern post as worked by wheel and tackle. But I can also move the Nautilus upward and downward on the vertical plane by simple method of slanting its two fins, which are attached to the sides of the center of flotation. These fins are flexible and able to assume any position, can be operated from inside by means of powerful levers. These fins stay parallel with the boat, the latter moves horizontally. If they slant, the Nautilus follows the angle of the slant, and under its propeller's thrust either sinks on a diagonal as steep as it suits me, or rises on that diagonal. And similarly, if I want to return more swiftly to the surface, I throw the propeller in gear, and the water pressure makes the Nautilus rise vertically, 
as an air balloon inflated with hydrogen lifts swiftly into their skies. Bravo, Captain! I exclaimed. But in the midst of the wildest, how can your helmsman follow the course you've given him? My helmsman is stationed behind the windows of a pilot house, which protrudes from the top side of the Nautilus's hull and is fitted with biconvex glass. Is glass capable of resisting such pressures? Perfectly capable. The fragile on impact crystal can still observe considerable resistance. In 1846, nope, in 1864, during experiments on fishing by electric light in the middle of the North Sea, glass panes less than 70 millimeters thick were seen to resist the pressure of 16 atmospheres, all while letting through strong heat-generating rays whose warmth was unevenly distributed. Now then, I use glass windows measuring no less than 21 centimeters at their centers. In other words, they are 30 times the thickness. F fair enough, Captain. But if we're going to see, we need light to drive away the dark in, in the midst of this murky water. I wonder how your helmsman can set stern of the pilot house as a powerful electric reflector whose layers light up the sea for a distance of a half mile. Oh, bravo! Bravo three times over, Captain. That explains the phosphorescent glow of the so-called narwhal that puzzled a, so a scientist so... Pertinent to this, I'll ask you if the Nautilus running afoul of the Scotia, which caused a great uproar, was the result of an accidental encounter. Entirely accidental, sir. I was navigating two meters below the surface of the water when the collision occurred. However, I could see that it had no dire consequences. None, sir. But as for your encounter with the Abraham Lincoln... Professor, that troubled me, because it's one of the best ships in the gallant American Navy. But they attacked me, and I had to defend myself. All the same, I was content to simply put the frigate in a condition where it could do me no harm. It wouldn't have any difficulty getting repairs at the nearest port. A commander exclaimed with conviction, Your Nautilus is truly a marvelous boat. Yes, Professor, Captain Nero replied with genuine excitement, and I love it as if it were my own flesh and blood. Aboard a conventional ship facing an ocean's peril, danger lurks everywhere. On the surface of the sea, your chief sensation is the constant feeling of the underlying chasm, as the Dutchman Jansen so aptly put it. But below the waves aboard the Nautilus, your heart never fails you. There are no structural deformities to worry about because the double hull of this boat has the rigidity of iron. No rigging to be worn out by rolling and pitching under waves. No sails of the wind to be carried off. No boilers for steam to burst open. No fires to fear. Because this submersible is made of sheet iron, not wood. No coal to run out of, since electricity is the mechanical force. No collisions to fear, because it navigates the watery depths all by itself. No storms to brave, because a few meters beneath the waves I find absolute tranquility. There, sir, there's the ideal ship. And if it's true that the engineer has more confidence in the craft than the builder, and the builder is more than a captain himself, you can understand with the utter abandon which I thrust in this Nautilus since I am its captain, builder, and engineer all in one. Captain Nemo spoke with willing, not willing, winning eloquence. The fire in his eyes and the passion in his gestures transfigured him. Yes, he loved this ship the same way as a father loves his child. But one question, perhaps indiscreet, naturally popped up and I couldn't resist asking it. You're an engineer then, Captain Nemo? Yes, professor, he answered me. I studied in London, Paris, and New York back in the days when I was a resident in the Earth's continents. How were you able to build this wonderful Nautilus in secret? Each part of it, Professor Arnox, came from a different spot of the globe and reached me at a cover address. 
Its keel was forged by Creosoth in France, its propeller shaft by Penincourt in London, the sheet iron plates for its hull by Lawrence in Liverpool, its propeller by Scots in Glasgow, its tanks were manufactured by Kale and Co in Paris, its engine by Krupp in Prussia, its spur by the Motelar Workshop in Sweden, its precision instruments by Hot Brothers in York, etc. And each of these suppliers received my specific instructions under a different name. But, I went on, once these parts were manufactured, then they have to be mounted and adjusted? Professor, I set up my workshop on a deserted islet in mid-ocean. There our Nautilus was completely, was completed by me and my workmen. In other words, by my gallant companions whom I've molded and educated. Then, when the operation was over, we burned every trace of our stay on that islet. Which, if I could have, I'd have blown up. For all of this, may I assume that such a boat costs a fortune? An iron ship, Professor Alnox, wants 1,125 francs per metric ton. Now then, the Nautilus is burning a 1,500 metric tons. Consequently, it costs 1,687,000 francs, hence 2 million francs, including its accommodations, and 4 to 5 million, with all the collections and works of art it contains. One last question, Captain Nemo. Ask Professor. You're rich, then? Infinitely rich, sir. And without any trouble, I could pay off 10 billion franc French national debt. I gasped at the bizarre individual with who had just spoken these words. Was he playing on my credulity? Time would tell. Ah, time would tell, my dear friends. It turns out Captain Nemo is rich as balls. He could fish the entire world out of debt, but alas... watching things on HBO Max. I wanted to talk about two movies that I witnessed. I think I may have hinted at them earlier, but in case I haven't, I'm going to talk about Alien and Aliens. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the first one uh, for the, the blatant reason that um, I just thought it was fine. Um, I understand like the legacy of the Alien franchise is pretty cool. Everybody likes the Xenomorph. Ripley's a badass. But the first movie, for me at least, was a little too... Uh, slow. It took a solid hour before anything interesting happened. Um, and that was the chestburster scene. So, yeah, the first movie, uh, I kind of would by and large, just, like if I were to rewatch these movies again, I'd just skip that one and head straight to Aliens. Because as, as, as lackadaisical as I found the first movie to be in terms of its plotting tone, the second movie was fucking phenomenal. It started out the gate so goddamn strong. I never once asked who the fuck this character was or what their name was, which are two questions I asked myself watching the first movie. I knew everybody, what they were doing. I knew their motivations. The story made sense. I loved it. It was incredible. I'm sitting there just with a big dumb grin on my face because, well, A, Bill Paxton, absolute fucking treasure of an actor. Rest in peace. Um, also, the only actor ever to be killed by a xenomorph the Terminator and the Predator. He's the only one. He's the only one. He, he got killed by all three. That being said, you don't really see him get killed in Aliens. He gets, like, dragged away, but we presume he's dead. Um, Because I think a grenade also explodes fairly soon after that. So he's probably dead. Um, Most likely. I don't know. Kill off camera. Anyway. Yes, Aliens was phenomenal. Um, I, I, like... I don't even know really what to, what can you say about this this fucking movie. It was funny. The action was good. 
It was. It had moments that that spooked me good. I thought the climactic battle against the alien queen in the mech suit was fucking amazing. Um, I saw a lot of parallels between this movie and Avatar. In reality, like James Cameron did both movies, right? And there are there are a lot of parallels. You can see like aliens had the mech suit, and then it kind of got better with alien with a with a Avatar. They both have aliens. Like there's a, there's a lot of similarities between the two films. And um, I'm actually a really big fan of both of those movies. I thought the music was really good in Aliens. Um, I will say that some of the the miniature work was pretty entertaining in that it was really obvious that it was like a little RC car driving around um, because like the speed wouldn't quite make sense with the with the landscape I was driving through. It didn't quite add up, which meant it was like a small scale. Um, but I think by and large, it's a really good movie. Way better than the first one. It just like Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Like it took what was set up in the first movie and just fucking went nuts with it. And when it went nuts with it, it fucking went awesome with it. So just just fucking spot on. Um and it had some of the most iconic lines that I've heard in like like just in the world afterwards like they mostly come out at night mostly and then, of course, my favorite line from the movie was, It's game over, man! It's game over! Like, oh my god. So fucking good! So yeah, Aliens. Absolute, like, fucking two thumbs up. Absolutely loved it. I know I'm behind the eight ball in this one, and everybody's already seen it, but fuck me, that's a good movie! Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So, yesterday... Uh, which would have been a couple of days ago by the time you guys are hearing this, I went out for a birthday celebration adventure. Uh, perhaps you can tell by the general sleepy tone of my voice that it was a, it was a really fun time. Let's put it that way. Um, it, we, we did a bunch of stuff. Uh, we started the day by going to Blade in Timber Axe Throwing Bar. Um, I, I think it's a bar. I'm pretty sure they serve alcohol, but they weren't serving it by the time we were there. Perhaps it's a later in the day sort of deal. But uh, they were tremendously nice and very informative. They taught you how to throw the axe properly. Uh, each lane was basically, they had like a giant dartboard on the end of it. Uh, you lob your axe, it thunks in the wall, you get some points. Pretty nice and simple. I have thrown axes a couple of times before at things like Renaissance fairs, and I have never in my life gotten that son of a bitch thing to stick in the thing I'm throwing it at, and I was able to do it this time, so instantly, A-plus effort on my part, but I was, by and large, the worst one there. Everybody else was a fucking natural when it came to throwing that axe, Um, which is totally fine, you know, but if we go by golf rules, I did a great job. So, and that's how I choose to view it. So, golf rules it is. Uh, we did that for a while, and then we went to a restaurant called Toulouse? Toulouse? T-O-U-L-O-U-S-E. It is a Cajun Creole Louisiana restaurant in the heart of Seattle. Uh, apparently, in 2012, it was rated as one of the best restaurants in the world. So, I was like, all right. Um, I had... French onion soup for the first time, which was delicious. I had a pasta dish with shrimp on it, which was absolutely phenomenal. And then we had some beignets, which were pretty goddamn tasty too. The food there was 
on a level that I haven't experienced in a long time. So if you're ever in the neighborhood, I don't know why I'm like pitching all these places. I had a lot of fun at everything I did this day. So I'm, I'm fully okay with like recommending and being like, this food was fucking amazing. It was so good. And the staff was really nice. And they actually have some pretty decent plexiglass shielding for, um, you know, social distancing and COVID um, prevention and stuff like that. So totally awesome. I absolutely loved it. And I would go back there today if I could, um, which I suppose I could if I really wanted to, but I'm not going to. Um, I've got other stuff I need to do today. But yeah, that fucking food was so goddamn good. So we did that. And while we were at the restaurant, I was like, hey, do you guys want to do an escape room? And they said, yeah. Uh, so, uh, we signed up for an escape room while we were at the restaurant, um, headed on over to the place, uh, which was called room 5280. I want to say, um, I think that's it. I'm not going to look it up, but I'm pretty sure that's it. And we did something called like the dark room and it was pitch black. We, the only light source we had was the, um, the flashlights that they gave us, um, at the, at the start of the adventure. Um, and of course, you know, it's creepy music the whole time. Um, we were able to escape. I'm not going to go into too great detail about like the contents of the room, because if you ever are in the neighborhood and want to give it a shot, I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, but we did escape with about two minutes to spare. So that's pretty awesome. And, um, the, the, the theme of the room was pretty, uh, was pretty clever. I'll, I'll give them that. It wasn't the most, uh, like... How do I want to phrase it? I've seen I've seen some escape rooms that were like you were in a fucking pirate ship and there were LCD screens in the wall that represented the rolling waves and there were sound effects of like the creaking of the boat. Like theming wise, some escape rooms are just way over the top. But this one, um, I think was special because there were everything in that room was useful. Nothing in that room didn't help you do a thing there were like no red herrings there wasn't just like piles of books somewhere you know just to like add confusion everything in that room needed to be in that room and you needed to use every piece of it so i'll give him i'll give him credit for that nothing wasn't useful um but that was a lot of fun we did escape and then after that uh we decided that the birthday boy needed to consume a duck heart so we went to my favorite bar in ballard skull which is the norwegian beer hall and they serve two grilled duck hearts on a skewer. It is a flavor that is fantastic. It tastes, you know, oh, what? Like, it tastes like duck, uh, in case you can figure that one out. And it is um, kind of kind of like a well-done steak. It's got, it's got a lot of toughness to it. Um, but we, we got him some of those. And then in the same vein of getting the birthday boy to try things, I ordered an Aquavit flight. And Aquavit is distinctive in its flavor um a lot of people tend not to enjoy it it is herbaceous and spicy um similar in vain to like uh you guys remember in uh the dark knight rises when michael Caine is like i would sit this little cafe and order myself a fernet branca and I was always was like, what the fuck is a Fernet Branca? And then I actually had it in Las Vegas, and it's basically like peppermint syrup. It's like it's like peppermint and Jägermeister mixed together in like a little shot. It's uh, it's not bad, but it's not great. So 
I don't know what Michael Caine sees in that stuff, but Aquavit has a similar flavor profile to Fernet Branca. So that's kind of Fernet Branca. You gotta, you gotta say it like that. <laughs> anyway, um, I didn't, I didn't mind the flavors of any of them, but the problem is, is Aquavit is strong stuff. So I didn't end up actually finishing the flight, but the birthday boy did try all the flavors and more power to him. Um, it was, it was awesome. I also tried all the flavors because I was the one that ordered and paid for it and then we went and, got, went and got ice cream across the street at a place called salt and straw or they got ice cream ice cream is my absolute favorite food in the world um and i know if i were to consume its delectable flavors again i would fall off the deep end and i would lose all the excellent healthy eating progress that i've made um in in recent years so i just can't let myself eat it there's only one place in this world i will eat ice cream and that's walt disney world um, because it's the happiest place on earth and why not indulge in the happiest food item ever by ice cream. So that was the rule I set up for myself. Um, and in that spirit, I've been to Walt Disney world twice in the last like decade and I've had ice cream there both times and that fun. But yeah, it was, it was a really fun day. Just axe throwing escape rooms, lots of food, fair bit of drinking. Um, absolute blast. It was, it was a really fun day. Um, and I was, I was happy to be there. It was, it was basically just the three of us and it was, it was a lot of fun and it was, it was a good time. It was a good time. And I was really thrilled with how seriously every place we went took COVID. Um, everybody was like super wearing masks, sanitizing surfaces before we used them. After we used them, people are taking this shit seriously, which they fucking should. It's still very much a problem. Hopefully it won't be a problem forever, but for right now, this shit's a problem. Anyway, and I'm not going to bring that in the mood. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. I'm going to just share a little bit of a rant on this one. I think the fact that people were getting docked in the Great British Baking Show because their bread doesn't have enough color is bullshit. Is it baked? Cool. Then they did it. Fucking shut up, Paul. Uh, you fuck. Chapter 14. The Black Spot. Nope, the Black Current. Now, it's spelled like a like an ocean current, not like a, um... Are they berries? I think it might be berries. Anyway, the part of the planet Earth that the seas occupy has been assessed at... What is his obsession with fucking numbers? Just like, just big old fucking... There's a bunch of big old fucking numbers in this one. Fine. It's been assessed at 3,832,558 square myrameters. My, myria, meters. Myria meters? Sure. Hence, more than 38 billion hectares. 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 There we go. This liquid mass totals 2 billion 250 million cubic miles could form a sphere with a diameter of 60 leagues whose weight would be three quintillion metric tons thank you for not fucking writing out all those zeros for me you monstrous asshole to appreciate such a number we should remember that a quintillion is a billion what a billion is to one in other words there are as many billions in a quintillion as ones in a billion <clears throat> now then <laughs> This liquid mass nearly equals the total amount of water that has poured through all the Earth's rivers for the past 40,000 years. During prehistoric times, an era of fire was followed by an era of water. 
At first, there was ocean everywhere. Then, during the Silurian period, the tops of mountains gradually appeared above the waves. Islands emerged and disappeared beneath temporary floods. Rose again, were fused to form continents. And finally, the Earth's geography settled into what we have today. Solid matter has rested from liquid matter some 37,657... Uh, yeah, 657,000 square miles. Hence, 12,916 hectares. Nope. Hectares. Hectares. God damn it. Anyway. The outlines of the continents allow the seas to be divided into five major parts. The frozen Arctic and Antarctic Oceans, the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific. So much for sailing the seven seas, huh? The Indian Ocean extends north to south between the two polar circles and east to west between America and Asia over an expanse of 145 degrees of longitude. It's the most tranquil of the seas. Its currents are wide and slow moving. Its tides moderate. Its rainfall abundant. This was the ocean uh, that I was first destined to cross under the strangest of auspices. If you don't mind, Professor, Captain Nemo told me, we'll determine our exact position and fix the starting point of our voyage. It's 15 minutes before noon. I'm going to rise to the surface of the water. The captain pressed an electric bell three times. The pumps began to expel water from the ballast tanks. On the pressure gauge, a needle marked the decreasing pressures that indicated the Nautilus's upward progression. Then the needle stopped. Here we are, the captain said. I made my way through the central companionway, which led to the platform. I climbed its metal steps, passed through the open hatches, and arrived topside of the Nautilus. The platform emerged only 80 centimeters above the water. The Nautilus's bow and stern boasted that spindle-shaped outline that had caused the ship to be compared appropriately to a long cigar. I noted the slight overlap of the sheet iron plates, which resembled scales covering the bodies of our large land reptiles. So I had a perfectly natural explanation for why, despite our best spyglasses, this boat always had been mistaken for a marine animal. Near the middle of the platform, the skiff uh, was half-set in the ship's hull, making a slight bulge. Fore and aft stood two cupolas of moderate height, their sides slanting and partly inset with heavy biconvex glass, one reserved for the helmsman steering the Nautilus, the other for the brilliance of the powerful electric beacon lighting as well. The sea was magnificent, the skies clear. This long aquatic vessel vehicle could barely feel the broad undulations of the ocean. A mild breeze out of the east rippled the surface of the water. Free of all mist, the horizon was ideal for taking sides. There was nothing to be seen, not a reef, not an islet, no Abraham Lincoln, a deserted immenseness. Raising his sextant, Captain Nemo took the altitude of the sun, which would give him his latitude. He waited for a few minutes until the orb touched the rim of the horizon. While he was taking his sights, he didn't move a muscle in the instrument. Couldn't have been steadier in his hands made out of steadier in hands made out of marble. Noon, he said. Professor, whenever you are ready. I took one last sight look at the sea, a little yellowish near the landing places of Japan, and I went below the, uh, hold on. I went below again to the main lounge. There, the captain fixed his position, used a chronometer to calculate his longitude, which he double-checked against his previous observation of our angles. Then, he told me, Professor Alnox, we are in longitude 137 degrees, 15 feet west. West of which meridian? I asked quickly, hoping the captain's reply might give me a clue to his nationality. Sir, he answered me, I have chronometers variously set to the meridians of Paris, Greenwich, and Washington, D.C., but in your honor, I'll use the one for Paris. This reply told me nothing. I bowed and the commander went on. We're in latitude 137 degrees, 15 feet west. Or, yeah, 15... I, I mean, it's the symbol for feet. I don't think it's feet. I don't know what it is, but we're, I'm going with feet. West of the meridian, Paris. Latitude 30 degrees, 7 feet north. In other words, about 300 miles from the shores of Japan. 
At noon on this day of November 8th, we hereby begin our voyage of exploration under the waters. May God be with us, I replied, and God bless us all, every one. And now, Professor, Captain added, I'll leave you to find your intellectual pursuits. I've set our course east-northeast at the depth of 50 meters. Here are some large-scale charts on which you'll be able to follow that course. The lounge is at your disposal, and with your permission, I'll take my leave. Captain, you're bad. I was left to myself lost in thought. They all centered on the Nautilus's commander. Who or would I ever learn the nationality of this eccentric man who had boasted of having none? His sworn hate for humanity, a hate that perhaps was bent on some dreadful revenge? What it provoked it. Is he hateful? I thought he just like, eh, fuck them. I have rescinded my shackles of the land-based mammalian. And I am now one with the fish. I thought it was just kind of more his, more his thing. I don't really think he's expressed a whole lot of hatred. Maybe cold, maybe indifference, but not hatred. At least, that's how I'm interpreting it. I think he's just more like, eh, fuck you. Not so much that I will destroy humanity. Anyway, was he one of those unappreciated scholars? One of those geniuses? Embittered by the world, as Count Sal expressed it, a latter-day Galileo, or maybe one of those men of science like America's Commander Maori, whose careers were ruined by political revolutions. I couldn't yet say. As for me, whom fate had just brought aboard his vessel, whose life he had held in the balance, he had received me coolly, but hospitably. Only he never took the hand I extended him. He never extended his own. For an hour, I was deep in these musings, trying to probe this mystery that fascinated me so. Then, my eyes focused on a huge world map displayed on the table. And I put my finger on the very spot where our just determined longitude and latitude intersected. Like the continents, the seas had its rivers. These are exclusive currents that can be identified by the temperature and color, the most remarkable being the one called the Gulf Stream. Science has defined the global paths of five chief currents, one in the North Atlantic, a second in the South Atlantic, a third in the North Pacific, a fourth in the South Pacific, and a fifth in the Southern Indian Ocean. Also, it's likely that a sixth current used, used to exist in the Northern Indian Ocean when the Caspian and Aral um, Seas joined up with certain large Asian lakes to form a single uniform expanse of water. Now then, at the spot indicated on the world map, one of these seagoing rivers was rolling by the Kuroshio of the Japanese, the Black Current. Heated by perpendicular rays from the tropical sun, it leaves the Bay of Bengal, crosses the Strait of Malacca, goes up the shores of Asia, and curves into the North Pacific as far as the Aleutian Islands, carrying long trunks of camphor trees and local other items of pure indigo of its warm waters sharply contrasting with the ocean waves. It was this current the Nautilus was about to cross. I watched down the map with my eyes. I saw it loose itself in the immense of the Pacific. I felt myself swept along with it when Nedland and Council appeared in my lounge doorway. My two Gallic companions stood petrified at the sight of the wonders on display. Where are we? The Canadian exclaimed. In the Quebec Museum. Begging pardons, master. Begging master's pardon. Begging pardons, master. God damn it, Council. Council said, But it seems this more like Summerland Artifacts Exhibition. My friends, I replied, signaling them to You are neither in Canada nor France, but securely aboard the Nautilus, 50 meters below sea level. If Master says so, so it be, Council answered. But in all honesty, this lounge is enough to astonish even some fun Flemish like me. Indulge your astonishments, my friend, and have a look, because there's plenty of work here to, for a classifier of your talents. Council needed no encouraging. Bending over the glass cases, the gallant lad had already muttered choice words of the naturalist vocabulary. Class, gastropodia, family, Buchanodia, genius cowrie, species 
Cyprey, Madagascar, and Ianius, yes, etc. Madagascar, Ianius. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nedland, less dedicated to conchology. Wow. That cannot be. No. Conchology? Well, hello, my name is Derwin Smitwick, and I'm your professor of conchology. <laughs> why must, why does everyone always chuckle when Professor Derwin Smitwick, professor of conchology, stop it. Stop laughing at my conchology degree. Why is it covered in clown paint? Conchology. Conchologist. Study in scientific collections of mollusk shells. Conchology. Wow. Alright. Whew. Rough one. What do you want to be when you grow up, Timmy? I want to be a conchologist. Go to the principles. Can't say that. Can't say that in public. Anyway. He, uh, less dedicated to, uh, conchology, questioned me about my interview with Captain Nemo. How did I discover who he was, where he came from, where he was heading, how deep he was taking us? In short, a thousand questions I had no time to answer. Told him everything I knew, or rather everything I didn't know, and asked him what he had seen or heard on his part. I haven't seen or heard a thing, Canadian replied. I haven't even spotted the crew of this boat. By any chance, could they be electric, too? Electric? Oh, you guys, I'm half-tempted to believe it. But back to you, Professor Arnox. Nedlin said, uh, still hanging on to his ideas. Can you tell me how many men are on board? 10, 20, 50, 100? I'm unable to answer you, Mr. Lend. Uh, trust me for this. For the time being, get rid of these notions of taking over the Nautilus or escaping from it. This boat is a masterpiece of modern technology, and I'd be sorry to have it missed. Many people would welcome the circumstance that has been handed to us, just to walk in the midst of these wonders. So keep calm, and let's see what happens around us. See! The harpooner exclaimed. There's nothing to see, nothing we'll ever see from this sheet iron prison. We're simply running around blindfolded. Now then was just pronouncing these last words when we were suddenly plunged into darkness. Utter darkness! The ceiling lights went out so quickly my eyes literally ached just as if we had experienced the opposite sensation from going from the deepest gloom to the brightest sunlight. We stood stock still, not knowing what surprise was waiting for us, whether pleasant or unpleasant, but a sliding sound became audible. You can tell that some panels were shifting over the Nautilus's eyes. It's the beginning of the end, Nedlin said. Order, order Hydra Medusa, Cancel muttered. Suddenly, through two oblong openings, daylight appeared on both sides of the lounge. Liquid masses came into bright, into view, brightly lit by the ship's electrical outpourings. We were separated from the sea by two panes of glass. Initially, I shuddered at the thought of these fragile partitions could break, but strong copper bands secured them, giving them nearly infinite resistance. The sea was clearly visible for a one-mile radius around the Nautilus. Holy shit. What a sight. Could Penn describe it? Who could portray the effects of this light through these translucent sheets of water, the subtlety of its progressive shadings in the ocean's upper and lower strata? The transparency of salt water has long been recognized. Its clarity is believed to exceed that of spring water. The mineral and organic substances it holds in suspension actually increase its translucency. In certain parts of the Caribbean Sea, you can see the sandy bottom with the startling distinctness as deep as 145 meters down and the penetrating power of the sun's rays seemed to give out only at a depth of 300 meters. But in this fluid setting traveled by the Nautilus, our electric glow was being generated in the very heart of the waves. No longer illuminated the water, it was liquid light. If we accept the hypothesis of microbiologist Enrich Berg, who believed that the underwater depths are lit by phosphorescent organisms, nature has certainly saved one of her mo most prodigious sites for the residents of the seas. And I could judge for myself, from a, the thousandfold play of the lights. On both sides, I had windows opening over these unexplored depths. The darkness in the lounge enhanced the brightness outside, and we stared as if this clear glass were a window of an immense aquarium. 
The Nautilus seemed to be standing still. This was due to the lack of landmarks, but the streaks of water parted by the ship's spur sometimes threaded over before our eyes with extraordinary speed. In Wondernet, we leaned our elbows before these show windows and were stunned. A silence was un uh, remained unbroken until Count said, "You wanted to see something, Ned, my friend. Well, now you have to see. Well, now you have something to see." How unusual. Canadian put in, setting aside his tantrums and getaway schemes while submitting to this irresistible allure. Irresistible, I say. A man would go an even greater distance just to stare at such a sight. Ah! exclaimed. I see a captain's way of life. He found himself a separate world that saves its most astonishing wonders just for him. But where are the fish? Oh, ah, that's, the, that's Canadian. <laughs> but where are the fish? Canadian ventured to observe. I don't see any fish. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Why would you care, then, my friend? The council replied, since you have no knowledge of them. Me? A fisherman? Another exclaimed. And on this subject, a dispute arose between the two friends, since both were knowledgeable about fish, but from totally different standpoints. Everyone knows that a fish makes up the fourth and last class of the vertebrate branch. They have been uh, quite aptly defined as cold-blooded vertebrates with a double circulatory system breathing through gills and designed to live in the water. They consist of two distinct series, the series of bony fish, in other words, those whose spines have vertebrae made of bone, and the cartilaginous fish. Uh, in other words, those whose spines have vertebrae made of cartilage. Possibly the Canadian was familiar with this distinction, but Council knew far more about it. Since he and Ned were now fast friends, he just had to show off. So he told the harpooner, Ned, my friend, you're a slayer of fish, a highly skilled fisherman. You've caught a large number of these fascinating animals. But I'll bet you don't know how they're classified. Sure I do, Harpooner replied in all seriousness. They're classified into fish we eat and fish we don't eat. Spoken like a true glutton, Council replied. But tell me, are you familiar with the differences between bony fish and cartilage and little blah fish? Maybe, Council said. And how about the subdivisions of these two large classes? I have the foggiest notion, Canadian replied. All right, listen and learn then, my friend. Bony fish are subdivided into six orders. Primo, the... A Acanthoperiogitis, who's up a. Let's try it again. Acanthopterygians. Pterygians. Acanthopterygians. Who gives a fuck? Who's up a jaw is fully formed and free moving, and whose gills take the shape of a comb. This order consists of 15 families. In other words, three quarters of all known fish. Example, the common patch. Pretty fair eating, Edlin replied. Secundo, uh, Council went on. The abdominals whose pelvic fins hang under the abdomen in the rear of the pectorals but are attached to the shoulder bone. In order that's divided into five families, makes up the great majority of freshwater fish. Examples carp, pike. Ugh. Canadian put on with a distinct squirt. You can give the freshwater fish. Terricio. Tertio. Sure, whatever. Council said, The subracations, whose pelvic fins are attached under the pectorals and hang directly from the shoulder bone. This order contains four families. Example, flatfish, that's a shoal, turbo dab, place, brill, etc. Excellent. Really excellent. Harpooner exclaimed, interested in fish, only from an edible viewpoint. Quattro! Council went on unabashed. The apodes, with long bodies that lack pelvic fins and are covered with a heavy, often glutinous skin. An order consisting of only one family. Example, Common eels and electric eels. So-so, just so-so. Ned Lund replied. Quinto, Council said. The Lofobratians, which have fully formed, free-moving jaws, but whose gills consist of little tufts arranged in pairs along their gill arches. This order includes only one family, example seahorses and dragonfish. 
Bad. Very bad. Harpoon replied. Sexto and last, uh, Count Saul said. The plectonaths, whose maxillary bone is firmly attached to the sides of the intermaxillary that forms the jaw and whose palate arches is locked to the skull by sutures that render the jaw immovable. An order lacking two pelvic fins, which consists of two families. Example, pufferfish and moonfish. I'm craterface. They're an insult to a frying pan, Canadian exclaimed. Are you grasping all this, Ned, my friend? Asked the scholarly counsel. Not a lick of it, counsel, my friend, I've already replied. But keep going, because you fill me with fascination. As for the cartilaginous fish, counsel went on unflappably, they consist of only three orders. Good news. Ned put in, no fucking kidding. I don't care about... Oh, whatever. I have to... Uh, okay. Why does this book have to be so fucking educational? Primo, the cyclostomies, whose jaws are fused into a flexible ring and whose gills openings are simply a large number of holes, in order consisting of only one family. Example, the lamprey. An acquired taste, Netherlands replied. Secundo, the Salasians, whose gills resemble those of the cyclostomies, but whose lower jaw is free-moving. This order, which is the most important in the class, consists of two families. Examples of the ray and the shark. What? Nedland exclaimed, Rays and man-eating, man-eaters in the same order? Well, counsel my friend on behalf of the rays, I wouldn't advise you to put them in the same fish tank. Tetrio? Tertio. I don't know, fucking know. Third? Counsel said, The Sterocians. Steronians. The Steronians, whose gills opening in a usual single slit adorned with a gill cover, an order consisting of four genera. Example, the Sturgeon. All right, Counsel, my friend, you saved the best for last, in my opinion, anyhow. And that's all of them? Yes, my gallant Ned, Counsel replied. And note well, even when one has grasped all this, one still knows next to nothing, because the families are subdivided into genera, subgenera, species, varieties. All right, Counsel, my friend, the harpooner said, leaning towards the glass panel. Here come a couple of your varieties now. Yes! Fish! Counsel exclaimed. One would think he was in front of an aquarium. No. Uh, no. I replied. Because an aquarium is nothing more than a cage. And these are fish as free as birds in the air. Well, Counsel, my friend, identify them. Start naming them. Nedlin exclaimed. Me? Counsel replied. I'm unable to. That's my employer's bailiwick. And in truth, although the fine lad was a classifying maniac, he was no naturalist. And I doubt that he could tell a bonita from a tuna. Is a bonito? Hold on a second. Is a oh yeah, the bonito is a fish. Oh, okay, I'm like I'm just thinking of like bonito flakes, right? I just thought that was the name. It shares the same family with tuna, so yeah, I don't know. I doubt I can tell you the difference between a bonito and a tuna either. I would be able to point and go, yeah, that's a fish. Got yourself a got yourself a nice fish, though. In short, he was the exact opposite of the Canadian, who knew next to nothing about classification, but it could instantly put a name to any fish. A triggerfish, I said. It's a Chinese triggerfish, Nedland replied. Um, Genius Ballistus, family Scotalermer, order Plathnigger. Council muttered. Assuredly, that and council in combination added up to one outstanding naturalist. The Canadian was not mistaken. Cavorting around the Nautilus was a school of triggerfish with flat bodies, grainy skins, armed with stings on their dorsal fins, and with four prickly rows of quills quivering on both sides of their tails. Nothing could have been more wonderful than the skin covering them, white underneath, gray above, with spots of gold dark, uh, sparkling with dark eddies of the waves. 
Around them, rays were undulating like sheets flapping in the wind. Among these, I spotted, much to my glee, a Chinese ray, yellowish on topside, a dainty pink belly, uh, dainty pink on its belly, and armed with three stings behind its eyes, a rarer species whose very existence was still doubted, uh, was still doubted in Lassipede's day, since that pioneering classifier of fish had only seen one in a portfolio of Japanese drawings. For two hours, a whole aquatic army escorted the Nautilus in the midst of their leaping and cavorting, uh, which, while they competed with each other in beauty, radiance, and speed, I could distinguish some green wrasse, bewhiskered mullet marked with pairs of black lines, white gobies from the genus Elotrius, with curved caudal fins and violet spots on their back, wonderful Japanese mackerel from the genus Scomba with blue bodies and silver heads, glittering azure goldfish, uh, whose name by itself gives their full description, Several varieties of porgy or gilt head, some banded gilt head with fins variously blue and yellow, with some with horizontal heretical bars. Sure. Yeah. And enhanced with a black stripe around their caudal area, some with color zones and elegantly corseted in their six waistbands. Trumpet fists with flute like beaks that looked like genuine seafaring woodcocks and were sometimes a meter long. Japanese salamanders. Serpentine moray eels from the genius Echidna, and that were six feet long with sharp little eyes and a huge mouth bristling with teeth, etc. A wonderment stayed at an all time fever pitch. Our exclamations were endless. Ned identified the fish to cancel, classified them, and as for me, I was in ecstasy over the verve of their movements and the beauty of their forms. Never had I been given the chance to glimpse these animals alive and at large in their native element. Given such a complete collection from the seas of Japan and China, I won't mention every variety that passed before a dazzled eyes. More numerous than birds in the air, these fish raced right up to us, no doubt attracted by the brilliant glow of our electric beacon. Suddenly, daylight appeared in the lounge. The sheet iron panels slid shut. The magical vision disappeared. But for a good while, I kept dreaming away until the moment my eyes focused on the instruments hanging on the walls. The compass still showed our uh, heading east-northeast. The pressure gauge indicated pressure of 5 atmospheres, corresponding to a depth of 50 meters, and the electric log gave our speed as 15 miles per hour. I waited for Captain Nemo, but he didn't appear. The clock marked the hour of 5. Ned and Council returned to their cabin. As for me, I repaired, I repaired to my stateroom. There I found dinner ready for me. It consisted of turtle soup made from the daintiest hawk's bill, a red mullet with wine, slightly flaky flesh, whose liver, when separate, uh, separately, when separately prepared, makes a delicious eating, plus loin of imperial angelfish, whose flavor struck me as even better than salmon. That's fucking high praise. I love salmon. Salmon's my favorite fish. I spent the evening reading, writing, and thinking. Then drowsiness overtook me, and I stretched out of my eel grass mattress and fell into a deep slumber, while the Nautilus glided through the swiftly flowing black current. This sounds like such a fucking pleasant place to be, doesn't it? Like, I'm just relaxed now. Oh, it's excellent. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of The Going Up Cast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. This was episode one fucking hundred. We've been doing this podcast for over two years. That shit blows my mind. I didn't really that didn't really sink in until I was like, wait a minute, one hundred fifty-two. Holy shit! Twenty eighteen, April of twenty eighteen is when this whole thing began, and it's just it's it doesn't really feel like it's been that long. I think it's because the progression of the audiobooks and the structure of how that goes, where it's like you finish a book and instantly start the next one. And never, there's no pausing, you know? There's always something new to go to. It, it just 
continues forever and ever and ever. And it's this kind of cyclical cycle that... Cyclical cycle. Nice. Awesome. It's 8 in the morning. I just wanted to point that out. Um, it it's really doesn't feel like it's been two years. And all of your constant support, uh, especially my Patreon supporters, it has been an absolute joy to talk about things that make us all happy, uh, to read these amazing books in funny ways. It is. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you very much for listening this week. I hope you're all staying safe out there, and I will see you throughout this week and next week for another episode of the Going Up Cast. Have a good one, everyone.